I'm Sonia Morton Firth and you're tuned in to the Sonia Morton Firth Show. Today my guest is Hugh Keir, former Three Paras Regiment sniper, military advisor and podcast host of H Hour. And so you, you were taught you could solve everything yourself. And you can, right, in the military, you can solve everything yourself, right, with your team around you. It was the most difficult thing for me because I realised I couldn't solve it myself. Hugh served 11 years as a sniper in the Paras. In 2008, he received the oldest award for gallantry for actions in Afghanistan. Um, about 8 o'clock in the morning, and uh, just, I was just stood in the corner, crying away to myself. Just, when I say crying, I was sobbing, sobbing, uncontrollable. Didn't know what the problem was. I just knew everything was a problem. My life was in tatters, meant the other tatters. I, I just, I saw, instead of seeing individual things that I could fix, individual problems I could fix, everything was just so overwhelming, there was no way out. Watch this interview as we discuss what it takes to make a sniper, what it feels like to be in the firing line, and how that affects mental health. Hugh, this is a real treat for me, you being a guest in my home, because I've been watching you and you've been one of my inspirations for the last two years, so thank you. No problem, inspiration, strong, strong word, but thank you. Well, you have your own amazing podcast, which I'm dying to talk a little bit more about, H Hour. Um, but before we get on to that, I want to talk about your military days and what made you join up in the first place. Oh, goodness me, I kind of hate this question. Because <laughs> you get asked I, it. Yeah, the people who... You hear the joining up questions and it's, uh, yeah, my, my whole family was military and it was just a rite of passage and it wasn't the case with me. So I think that um, before me, Second World War was when my previous relative, you know, had uh, joined up. But I joined because um, I wasn't happy with who I was, basically. I was a really so low self-confidence, low self-esteem uh, lad uh, with quite awkward socially for some reason, I'm not sure why. Uh, perhaps growing up on a farm, surrounded by animals instead of humans was one of the things. And um, I think forced as well by a college attendance that wasn't going to work out. <laughs> I'd already had aspirations to join the RAF. For some reason, I don't know why, I ended up joining the army, joining the powers instead, because of uh, happen chance, a, a weekend insight with the powers in all the shots. Um, turned up at the same time I was really considering, right, let's get rid of college, let's, let's go for the military now. Attended that weekend and then a few months later I'd signed up. And did that help with your self-esteem? The elements of the career did, but just joining up didn't. It didn't. I've thought of this a lot recently. Mm. And really I still had the same issues with my self-confidence and self-esteem, certainly in the military, um, right up four, five, six years in, um, definitely. And the thing that changed was a, a, um, an operation change that really changed who I was and sort of my belief in myself. But my self-confidence when I, was, when I joined up at home, back at home in my community, I did stand a bit taller. I felt a bit more confident at home because I felt like I, I proved some worth to myself. Uh, and so yeah, I felt equal to my peers at home in Crinan, in South Wales, where I grew up. But in the military, was not the when I was in three power, it was not the case. I was still very low self-confidence and very low self-esteem and really not happy with how I was. Yeah. But you, how long did you serve? You served quite a long 11 time. 11 years. 11 yeah, years. Yeah. And in that 11 years, talk me through a little bit of your journey of that 11 Goodness years. Goodness me. It was, uh, 
Yeah, I, I, I joined up at what I, I call it the sweet spot of British military operations in the 21st century and late late 20th century. So there wasn't much happening in the 90s. You had the Gulf War early 90s, but there was short military operations here and there. But Northern Ireland was also very much ongoing. It was dwindling down in terms of how kinetic it was. Obviously, 2000, 2001, the Twin Towers happened and then everything went pear-shipped. Uh, so my 11 years was in and out of operations. Um, and when I wasn't in operations, it was training for operations. So it was 2001 to Ireland, 2002 out of the Falklands for a four-month Roman infantry tour. Uh, I say tour, I wasn't really in operation. I think it's classed as an operation. There's no medal on it. Uh, it's, uh, it's basically part of the security in the Falkland Islands. It was interesting, that one, because the year before, or less than a year before, Argentine Special Forces, um, rigid raiders, uh, so um, boats, for want of a better word, have been found off the coast of the West Falklands. So we thought they were doing a, a reconnaissance. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was in 2000 and we, uh, 2001, and we went out in 2002. So a lot of our time was spent patrolling the, patrolling the, bo- the, uh, the coastline, looking for possible infiltration points, uh, wrecking, wrecking islands for weak spots, basically. 2003 then was the Iraq War. Uh, 2004, back to Ireland, 2005, back to Iraq, 2006, Afghanistan, 2008, Afghanistan, 2010, Afghanistan, 2009, Uganda, on the jungle training. Yeah. Wow, wow, okay. <laughs> it was so, hard as so that. you've done yeah. a, lot of, a lot of tours. Now, in that time, um, you were a sniper. Mm-hmm. What attributes do you think you had that made you a good at being a sniper or made you a sniper? Hmm. Well, I, that's a good question. Do I think I had? Even before I became... Uh, I'd been shooting from a young age, a relatively young age. I enjoyed shooting. Uh, when I say shooting, hunting. Mm. So on the farm, you know, hunting vermin, rabbits, foxes, crows, things like that on the farm. And I really enjoyed doing it. Uh, my dad had taught me the, you know, the, the, sort of the basics of that. So I thought it was a good shot. Um, arguably was a good shot. And... There's, there's definitely a temperament, a suited, a suitable temperament to sniping, or the art of sniping, I should say, definitely, because it's a different kind of soldiering. Um, so ignore the skills and the experience that you need to have to even entertain the idea of becoming a sniper, let alone passing the course and becoming one. There's a different way of operating which is very very much of the time you're on your own or you're in a pair and so that's quite different to what standard infantry is regardless of whether you're parachute regiment or any other unit it's a different way a lot of the decisions on how you're going to go about executing the mission planning the approach planning the kill is down to you on your own or you and your buddy as opposed to a hierarchical chain saying this is how we're going to do it this is how we're going to approach we're going to go to this area xyz so it's a lot of responsibility on yourself. Um, regardless of your rank, you could become a sniper when you're a private, you know, and yet that responsibility is piled on you. So, funny enough, kind of about the confidence, you need to have confidence in your decision making, your tactical ability, your knowledge of sniping, and your knowledge of everything else. Um, and then the patience to go through and execute it. You know, kinetic activity, um, conventional attacks are seen as very 
frantic, very high-paced, very volatile situations in order to achieve what you to achieve, which is kill the enemy, take the objective. With sniping, it is very, very, very measured. The last thing you want to be doing is rushing. Because if you're rushing and if it becomes a very volatile situation, <laughs> you haven't done it. something right at the start, you haven't planned it properly. And, uh, and uh, yeah, you won't be a sniper for very long. And you mentioned temperament in there as well. What temperament do you think you need to be? Calm, collected, measured, patient. Again, confident, confident in your abilities, confident in your planning, um, and 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 the ability to remain remain calm in the most high pressure situations. Uh, which and all of the, you know, some of those things they're common across the military. Mm. You gotta have those, right? But it's all of them together as a package in terms of that. So set that makes up that personality or that temperament they're quite you don't have to have them to be a sniper they are very very useful though if you want to be good at your job does that make sense yeah absolutely does i couldn't think of a because i'm guessing if you're quite an impatient person and you just want to get a job done then sniping probably isn't for you because you've got to be you've got to have that patience i guess to and most of those are filtered out in uh, you know in in the, in the courses and the selections you, you, I think one of the issues you get with people wanting to become a sniper is they, they want to become a sniper for the wrong reason. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's cool. <laughs> yeah. You know. It oh, sounds cool. great. Well, you know, and, and, and that is the wrong motivation. The other, the other thing is, it's very unusual, in my experience anyway, to be able to say, I want to be a sniper and then elect yourself to be able to be put on the course doesn't really work like that. It didn't when I was serving anyway. You would get invited. You could absolutely express an intention. Oh, I'd like to go to the sniper platoon. Like every single man did probably when I was serving. But very few get invited to even attempt the course to then maybe get into the platoon. You know, so um, and that's a good way of doing it because the the the, the unit of snipers which exists are looking to uplift their capability, replace a person, get a new sniper in. They know what's needed, so they can filter out the the wrong ones from the right ones you know and not being suited to being a sniper doesn't mean you're a, a poor soldier mm. a bad soldier it just means you're not suited to being a sniper yeah. that's Defense it for all the reasons we just we just talked yeah. about so let's take you back to the muscala the, the the escape um tell me about that do you have memories of that <laughs> yeah. yeah definitely got memories of that um which what do you want me to talk about in particular which aspects interest you the most so do you want me to outline it? Yeah, if you so could, people, what uh, happened, okay. just if people are All right, so this is during uh, Operation Herrick 4, which was the first, sort of, in inverted commas, combat operation in Afghanistan for British forces in 2006. Um, three para battle group were out there, so that is three para supported by other units, uh, other infantry units as well, Royal Irish, for example, Fusiliers, um, were bolstering up three para manpower and then logistics and engineers and stuff like that. We were... We ended up on that operation. The intent was to secure, secure certain areas of ground. We were holding different areas, things like, you know, Sangin Valley, Sangin Town, Musakali you just mentioned, Kajaki Dam. All these words probably ring ring some uh, or resonate in some people's uh, some people listening now. One of those areas we ended up in was Musakala, uh, Musakala District Centre. Now, we didn't intend to be there. We, being British forces, didn't intend to be there. We ended up in there, holding this ground, largely because we couldn't get out. And then the 
the, the result was, and this is a very, very contracted story, mm. but the result was that in order to, for us to get out, there was no uh, Brit British forces couldn't get out, US forces couldn't get us out, didn't have the manpower to be able to launch the size of operation needed to get what was maybe around 100 of us in there out of the, um, out of the compound. So a deal was struck with the Taliban, a ceasefire, and the, the Taliban organised our extraction out. So, so in <laughs> that period of the actual attack, yeah. um, I mean, how did that make, how was that, how did that make you, how, how did you feel at the time? It wasn't one attack. So the way these places work is you would hold, so let's take Sangin, Sangin town, for example, you'd have troops inside the base, on operating base there, they can, you know, live, sleep, eat, get ready for the next patrol, hold the ground, gain ground, repel the enemy. And it would be a, you get attacked on a frequency, um, you, you may get attacked and you got patrol or not. Musakala was very much that model, except that because of the manpower and the nature of the ground, we couldn't get out of the gate, we couldn't launch patrols. So we were very much stuck within the compound which meant that, and because of the nature of the town, the Taliban could approach without being seen, sometimes without being heard, most of the time you could hear them, up to the walls of the compound. When I say compound, you have to imagine a, 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 a perimeter mud wall, if you like, you know, we all seen the pictures of uh, Afghan on TV, mm. a perimeter mud wall inside which are various buildings and it's a, it's a set of buildings and, and uh, structures within the, within the compound. They could approach the wall without being seen and so could attack us at close quarters. Uh, they pretty much had free run of the town. Um, so when, to come back to your question about what, the attack, it wasn't the attack, it would be anywhere from five to 10 attacks a day. Uh, something more, sometimes less, every day. Um, so you were like sitting yeah. ducks? Essentially, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think, I think the only reason that we, were, we, were, we didn't get overrun is because they didn't realise how dire our situation was. I don't think they realised how low we were on ammunition. I don't think they realised how low we were on food. Water we were fine for, but low on food. I don't think they realised how small the appetite of the military, the, 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 the um, joint, joint command mm. was to come in and... Get you out. Get, to risk helicopters coming in and out. I don't think they realised. And if they'd realised... I think very early on they would have thrown a lot more manpower and maybe I wouldn't be sitting here. I think that's the reality of it. Did you realise, did you realise that no one was coming in or, or did you think people were coming in? No, it, <clears throat> you go day to day, especially when the frequency of attacks is, is like that. You don't really have time to think it was crazy. It was just crazy. Um, so, no. And you, I've never been in a position even to this day. I've now been in a position where at the time I think, my God, there's no help coming. They can't get us out. And that was the situation at the time, even though without realising it, they couldn't get us out. They couldn't get us out. But you go from day to day, even up to the day when they pulled, when the Taliban organised the extraction. So they organised the vehicles, they picketed the route, they got us out. It wasn't British faces or American faces outside the camp. It was Taliban. Even at that point, I don't think it really, I really realised, my God, they couldn't get us out. This is how it's ended up. And when I think back now, every time I think back now, I think how ridiculous the situation was. You think of a time where, where British troops have been 
have been escorted out of the place they're occupying by, by the, the enemy. enemy. That's Second World War stuff. If, if well, Second World War stuff. Crazy. It's crazy. And this is 2006. <laughs> what, if, you, if you look back, what do you think got you through that? Um, I mean, emotions must have been high. What emotions did you have to hold on to to sort of get no, through was, it? No, I, emotions weren't there. I, I completely disassociated. Okay. I was, um, yeah, I, that was, it, what I know now is the impact of stress. So I completely shut off emotionally. Um, and it was just going through the motions. The camp would get attacked. I'd go out with my buddy, my slightly buddy Jared. We'd go out, we'd do what we need to do in the attack. And we'd come back in, wait for the next one. We'd go back out again, you know, day in. The hour in, hour out, doing that, um, and I think the the impact and the stress on me yeah, just it switched off any um, any thought of fear, emotion as a defense mechanism. Yeah. Because if you start worrying about, if I was to start worrying about, oh my god, I'm going to get killed in the next attack. Oh my god, are we ever going to get out of here? Are we going to get overrun? That compromises my ability to respond to the attack that comes yeah. up next. It also impacts the people I'm around. They, you know, as a commander, they see me breaking down, for example, see me having a, have a, having a, um, a, a dodgy moment, then it doesn't exactly inspire confidence. Mm-hmm. Uh, the problem was that feeling lasted a long time. I, I was going to say, so if I sort of fast forward from that point <clears throat> to when you have left the military, did you suffer from the events that had gone on? Yeah, it, yeah, I definitely did. Especially, it started after that first that first Afghan torture of six. I subsequently did two others, but in between that uh, emotional numbness, that sort of disassociation from when I say disassociation, I mean you know events that should elicit an emotional response do not, were not to elicit an emotional response uh, on operations which isn't a bad thing, but when you come home and it's your daughter, for example, I don't know, little things, falling over, banging her head, a car crash, X, Y, Z, and you, I would just switch off, even things like an argument, you know, I would just switch off, no, look at it black and white, no emotional response whatsoever, and it can make you look like a right heartless guy. Mm. <laughs> it doesn't go down very well sometimes. Well, I guess what you've just been through, uh, I guess you've, put, you've got to put it into context, but if you can't put it into context... It does, in context, but then when you talk... And, in, and relatively, the, the small things here in the UK, you know, there's people in operations now, the small things here, they are irrelevant to those people in operations, right? They're irrelevant. Um, the bus being late, who cares? There's an operation where other people putting lives at risk, but it, that becomes irrelevant when that's not where you are. You're at home, or you're down the pub, or you're watching a rugby match, you know, um, and it is, it is a problem. And plus, that disassociation, that emotional numbness, it prevent, I think, it prevented me from addressing those feelings, mm. understanding. Um, why certain things I found difficult, why I generally wasn't very happy, you know, because I wasn't addressing any of the emotion. It wasn't, just wasn't registering. Mm. So you, you compartmentalise it, right? People hear about bottling it up. And quite often it sounds like an active thing that people do. Oh, all this stuff, I'm not going to talk about it. Well, sometimes it's, it's a subconscious thing, which it was mm. for me. It's just there. I'm not even looking at it. Don't know it's there. <laughs> I'm not even going to think about it. So during that time, what was your sort of lowest moment? It actually came about, I say about, it did come 
11 years later. 11 years later. So I, I added, what I look, at, I look at it now is a really slow downward spiral. Downward, yeah, downward spiral from mental health being of a decent level. And then I think that tour kicked it into a, a slow downward spiral in the end of 2006 onwards. Really gradual decline, but not realising it because I was still very, very much in a kinetic role on, within 3Power when I was serving in and out of operations. Um, and, and then when I left in 2011, I went to the Middle East for four years. That was very much quite a, you know, uh, not volatile, a fast paced lifestyle away for a lot, come back for a little bit away from a lot, very much like the military I was doing. Not having to pay much attention to my mental health. It was sort of sustaining itself in a, in, in a way, um, sort of preventing the decline going any quicker. Do you think um, you knew you were consciously doing that? No. Or was it, it was no. locked away? No, okay. no, I didn't. I didn't know because it seemed okay. Mm. Uh, it seemed okay, but in hindsight, it wasn't. And then I came back from working in the Middle East to, to work in the UK, so into a normal lifestyle, normal job, nine to five, and just that normal life that everyone has, right? And that's where it's sort of that I was able to benchmark there. In, again, in hindsight, where I was at mentally, and I wasn't happy. I wasn't happy at all. And then, for you, was that 2011, 2015? Yeah, 2015. So two years after that, that point, I came back from working away. Two years later, even after I'd I'd experienced some friends kill themselves out of the blue, um, and thought, how could you get to that point in your life? Where things are that bad, where you decide you're going to take your own life, and within within a year and a half of that first one happening, I was doing the same thing myself. I was in the, my living room of where I lived at the time, um, about eight o'clock in the morning, and uh, just I was just stood in the corner, crying away to myself. Just when I say crying, I was sobbing, sobbing uncontrollable. Didn't know what the problem was. I just knew everything was a problem. My life was in tatters. Mentally, I was in tatters. I, I just, I saw instead of seeing individual things that I could fix, individual problems I could fix, everything was just so overwhelming. There was no way out. I didn't know how to get out, and uh, that was the second time. So, so the thought of suicide had crossed my mind, and I realised, and that's part of the reason I was, I was sobbing as well because I realised, I, oh God, I'm choking it now. I realised I got to that point that my oldest friend in the military had been to make a decision to take his own life and you were at that point yeah and it was realizing how much pain he had gone through because that's why i was in <laughs> going now what, going, does, <clears throat> what does the pain feel like now what as i am now yeah it's fine but i, I hate thinking of myself that way yeah. it's it's like a, i have an empathy for what i was feeling then which is where why it brings me to tears now i know how terrible it felt and so i know that people who aren't you anymore have gone through that and worse you have to think I only I suicide crossed my mind twice I never went through a plan I never went on planning it I never tried to take my own life it crossed my mind twice so there are people so the pain I was going through to feel that and there are people who've gone beyond that the pain must be indescribable must be indescribable so when I think my my first friend that took himself out took his own life out of the blue just thinking about the torment he must have been in 
to, to be in that mind state. And people are in that mind state now. Absolutely in that mind state now. And it, it's so overwhelming. It's so consuming in, in terms of your, your thoughts and your feelings. You can't see any options. Everything is terrible. There's no way out. Even though, for me in that example, I had a, a, a charity down the road, a military charity down the road, who could help with mental health issues. That wasn't even an option in my mind. I didn't even see it as being a, a solution to what I needed to do. Um, and, and that's why I think that when we, we have this misconception that people should, if they're in a bad way mentally, they should ask for help. It's all very well saying that. A lot of people can't. When you get that low, that deep into the pit, you don't want to ask for help. No. I didn't want to speak to anyone. I, I was embarrassed. I was ashamed. I felt like a burden on everyone. I didn't want to speak to anyone. Anyone. Let alone ask home for help. You know, I had, a, I had a couple of friends who would ring me and check. They were a couple. And they would ring me periodically and check in. And they would approach it different ways, the pair of them. One of them would ask me every time, how are you? It's the first question they would get asked. I would lie every time. It's like the worst question to ask. The worst question to ask someone who was in the most indescribable pain. How are you? <laughs> how do you say I'm If great? you look back, <laughs> what would be the right question? Or is there a right question to ask somebody? <clears throat> there isn't. So the other, the other person, he, he made me promise him that when he realised how bad I was getting, he made me promise him that if I ever, any time I felt that bad, just to pick up the phone and call him. And I didn't for ages, because it just took a lot of a lot of effort to do. Again, I didn't want to talk to anyone, I felt embarrassed. This guy was one of my subordinates when we were serving. You know, I was senior to him. So, and it's and like, a, it's, it's this weakness, expression of weakness and acceptance that you can't fix it yourself. But I started calling him, and when I felt terrible, I'd call him. I'd call him and he'd say, you're right. And most of the times, I maybe only called him four or five or six times. But most of the time I wouldn't even speak. Because I knew if I opened my mouth to talk, I'd just burst into tears. I didn't want to burst into tears on the phone to him. And he wouldn't say, as soon as the silence was there and he did get response, he'd just say, okay. And he'd just start talking to me. Yeah. About random stuff. Yeah. Not how are you, but you know, what did you do yesterday? Where are you now? Those little things. Yeah. And that would open up the avenue for me to either feel a little bit better simply because I'd let him know I was not good. I hadn't told him. But simply through calling him, I'd let him know. And then in the back of my mind, someone knows I'm not on my own in this. Mm. The other times I'd explain to him how I was feeling and we'd talk through it and then I'd feel a little bit better. It's almost like crisis management, right? The, the, the old Samaritans on the phone. He was my good Samaritan. Well, absolutely. Yeah. Um, what, if, if you look back, you see he helped. What, what sort of really pulled you through? Because you're sitting here today and you're doing amazing things. But The same guy kept telling me to go and get help <laughs> like he had been telling me for about 18 months he so he so people from the outside can very much uh can what's the word what we're saying there people from the outside can quite often see a a, a, a negative change in you very much earlier than you can mm -hmm. see it he was telling me 18 months before to go and get help and he was suggesting um the charity he got help through and 18 months I ignored it, you know, and this is 18 months before I'd had suicidal thoughts and 18 months later of him repeating it to me, repeating to me, not harping on to me like he was, you know, the Messiah and knew everything about mental health, because he didn't. 
But he just recognised that I wasn't great. And he kept saying to me, go and get help, go and get help, go and get help, go and get help. And, um, and where to go and get help, his suggested route. Mm. And that morning in the living room, sobbed my heart out. Uh, my, that's when I thought, I, I'm gonna, right, I need to go. Because if I don't go, the next stage, I'm gonna be planning. I'm gonna be planning how I'm gonna kill myself. Uh, again, I, I sort of frightened myself, knowing that the previous people that had taken their lives, I didn't want to get to that stage. I didn't want to leave my kids without a dad. That was one of the main ones. It's that I didn't want to do that to them. Um, and so I, I took myself into the into the Shabbat house in Colchester, which is a help heroes. Mm, yeah. Yes. Uh, that is probably the hardest thing I've ever done. Bar none, bar none in my life, the hardest thing. What, why was done. that so hard? Compared to obviously you'd been in horrendous situations. Life or death situations, well, I guess this was. I think because I was a person who thought I could fix something myself. When you're in the military, you know all of the tools you've got at your disposal to achieve the aim. You know all of the support you've got. You know what the people left and right you can do. You know what you are capable of. Exactly what you're capable of at any given situation. You also have a really good idea of what the threat is what the enemy do, what the weapons are, what, what their tactics are, how are they going to try and defeat you. And so you, you are taught you can solve everything yourself. And you can, right, in the military, you can solve everything yourself, right, with your team around you. Right? It was the most difficult thing for me because I realised I couldn't solve it myself. I was trying to fix this. I was going to, I didn't have the knowledge. I didn't understand what the threat was, which was the biggest piece. Did not understand what the threat was. Um, and it was an acceptance that there's some things I'm not great at. <laughs> and at that point in time, it was managing my own mental health. Uh, and I went down to Shabbat's house. I went to the car, got in the car park. I sat in the car, in the car, in the car park for 20 minutes. Sobbed my heart out again, like uncontrollable. When I say you're sitting there crying, it was I couldn't stop it. it, it I just couldn't stop it. Um, and then I walked in and. Uh, you know, wipe the tears away. My eyes are puffed red, so blatant. I've been crying. Walked in, asked the lady at reception. The lady at reception, how can I help you today? Oh no! Yeah, oh, yeah. No. <laughs> and I was fighting it back. And I said, I'd like to speak to someone, please. And she said, uh, what? What about? And oh. I said, yeah. See, this is the problem. I couldn't answer the question. Of course. Not. Hi, I'd like help, please. With what? I got no idea. <laughs> I've got no idea. What do I need help with? I've got no idea. Yeah. All I know is, I am. I'm contemplating suicide. I've got all these problems I can't fix. I don't know where to start. I don't know what the problem is. I don't know why I've ended up in this situation. How the hell am I here? When I saw this, I saw someone two years before do the same thing, and I went, "How? How did he do that? How did he get in that position?" And now I'm in exactly the same state, even though I knew I could see it coming. How am I here? So yeah, when yeah, she asked me um, what I wanted to talk about, and I, I just a little tear cracked. I should okay, take a seat. I took a seat and then that was it. So what then, tools, did, did, they, <laughs> did they sort of give you tools and is there things that you put into practice now or? There's so many. I think um, there's, there's a, the thing is now I have a, a real understanding of the, the scope and range of tools, mental health tools, there are out there to help you sustain your mental health, right? Or improve your mental health at times you need to improve it. And for whatever reason, maybe you've got an exam coming up you need to perform optimally mentally, you can improve it, right? Or get yourself out of a, out of a, out of a pit. Um, 
and I, I pick and I sort of pick and choose the ones I need at the right time. Some of them are, are really I, I focus on a lot of the time. I try and give myself routine. Routine mm-hmm. is yes. a huge thing for me now. I realise, and as small as that sounds, a lot of people don't have the routine. But routine is it's what normalises your life from day to day. You can plan, you can adjust, you can get ready mentally prepared. It's a huge thing for me, and especially for ex-military, I think we, we miss that if we haven't got it. Physical activity. Yeah. I mean, these are all things you go, these are obvious. Yeah, they are obvious. But but people don't do but, it. No, and especially when you're not in a great place mentally, mm-hmm. the impact of physical activity, doing it when you are in a really bad way, it's tenfold of what it is when you are happy. Mm-hmm. Tenfold. If I'm stressed, if I work at the morning stressed and anxious, as any of us get, you know, I get time to time now, my first thing that I will do, my... Um, my, uh, what do they call it, immediate reaction, my, my, my IA drill, immediate action drill is I go outside, I change my environment, I go for a walk, no phone, I get outside, I get out of the place I'm in where I'm struggling to think, struggling to put an email together, struggling to plan whatever, out the door, I change the temperature, I change the surroundings. I, I love that because I've, I've been through the same and that uh, similar things and, and when I need my mood changing, that's the best thing to do. Change your perspective change on the problem and you come back in and you, you've, you've, you've reinvigorated yourself. It sounds small, but it's huge. It's huge. Um, yeah. Hugh, we've got to talk about your podcast. Tell me, because <laughs> I've been watching your podcast for, uh, or listening to your podcast for um, a couple of years now. What gave you... The, well, what, what was the inspiration of your podcast? What was the aim of it? Uh, a lot of the reasons I went, I think I went into a, you know, a bad place of mental health um, and was not as, and, and, and struggled with sort of the military transition, if you like, when I left as well, was a lack of knowledge, yeah. a, a real lack of knowledge in many, many areas, especially the mental health place. But uh, as you know, you can't go, especially in the mental health thing, you're used to interviewing soldiers, sailors, airmen, you know, military people, you can't go preaching to those kind of people, that kind of demographic about mindfulness and meditation. Just sit in your chair and go, um, yeah, yeah, right. (laughs) Exactly. So um, I wanted to learn more about it. I want to learn from like-minded people about their journey's experiences and inform myself along the way, but also in having those conversations, give other people the opportunity to listen or watch and learn for themselves. Be in a conversational setting. Shooting the breeze, you know, like like you and I are doing now, mm. and pick up snippets of information, useful information along the way, uh, which I think I've done, um, or I do. You know, we were talking off air. It's nice when you get a you, you get a response, a positive response to an interview that you do. That's helped someone in whatever way, shape, or form. Yeah. And because those responses that you get, you get one response, and guaranteed there's at least five others that haven't told you that that particular interview and it makes it all and the best. Yeah, magnifies it. How has it helped you as well? Has it helped? you've become definitely when I started the podcast I was still very much in a really really bad place mentally terrible place like the first the first six months of that podcast on screen on air I seemed fine I was an absolute car crash I said that absolute car crash but through meeting and engaging with people and learning about their journeys being inspired by their journeys learning about knowledge they have around mental health and all sorts of different things, little things like routine, got outside for a walk. Um, the, the podcast is probably one of the main reasons I've, I've got to a state now where I'm, I'm happy. You know, I, I mean, I'm, 
I've improved my mental health in such a way. I think otherwise it would have happened, but it would have been a lot longer a journey. And it's just, again, exposure to information, listening to other people. We all have our individual stories. Everyone's an incredible person, whether they're a celebrity or whether they're not, whether they serve two seconds in the military or whether they're a postman. You know, everyone's background is unique and everyone has knowledge that you and I don't have. It's about drawing that out and learning from it, right? Oh, yeah. Where do you where do you see it going? What's the future for Hugh and H Hour? Uh, I want to well, I want to in, in, increase how many podcasts I'm doing a week. So they're about one a week at the moment, um, and I think that the, the, it's naturally now the interviewees are naturally now involving more people who aren't necessarily of a military only background, um, and I think that's in, important for me again to expand my knowledge and learn. And bring in those stories. It's not the military aren't a unique set in that we have unique experiences and we're the only valuable people in in, in the world, right? It's not the case. I come back to the point. Everyone has value. I want to find those people, dig out the people who are who have untold stories, or those who have got good stories but haven't told it a certain way and, and, and apply them for knowledge and, and information, good stories and and um, and learn from them and inform my listeners and viewers. Well, I love your podcast. We're going to put the link in the show notes. Definitely H hour. It's brilliant. My final question, Hugh, is knowing what you know today and your knowledge, what advice would you give your younger self? <laughs> I asked this question. <laughs> I asked this question as well, yeah. Um, what advice would you give the younger self? Don't judge yourself based on the people around you. Judge yourself and what your abilities are. My low self-confidence, my low self-esteem that I referenced earlier, I was, I was comparing myself to everyone else. I was trying to be what they were in terms of what was deemed successful or acceptable and great and good and cool. And in my own right, as an individual, I was not bad. <laughs> I cool. had value. Everyone has value. Everyone has, has value. It depends on what your reference point is how valuable you see yourself. Hugh, thank you so much. It's really been an honour to have you here at my house. Thank, thank you. you. Hope you enjoyed the show. Remember, there's a new interview out every Monday. So hit subscribe and like, and you'll get it straight into your inbox.